Hello and welcome to Spiritual Shit, your guide to the down and dirty of modern spirituality. This podcast is a place for people wanting to discover more about spirituality, where we can get weird about ghosts, mediumship, aliens, psychics, religion, new age, awakening, ascension, starseeds, channeling, holistic health, philosophy, and even dating. Some shows will be just me rambling about my mystical experiences and discoveries, while other shows will have guests to open up new perspectives and views. I hope you'll join me on this journey as we discuss and open up what spirituality in today's modern world really looks like. Remember to like and subscribe to never miss an episode and hit me up at thelovelyleah.com or at thelovelyleah on Instagram so we can connect. Become a Patreon supporter to get access to behind the scenes of our guests, freebies, early access to new episodes, discounts on merch, and more. Hello, fine folks of the digital universe. Happy New Year. I hope that you had a beautiful and safe New Year. This year, it's so funny. New Year's is my favorite, absolute favorite holiday. And uh, I didn't even stay up long enough to count down. <laughs> we put the baby to bed and uh, fell asleep. And it was like, oh, yeah, happy New Year. And then went back to bed. <laughs> so nothing too eventful for myself. But uh, I did make sure to sit down and set my intentions for the new year. And it's something I do every year. It's it's not to be superstitious or anything or even, you know, to get into a space of like, these are my resolutions, but uh, intentions. I want to kind of shoot for the stars and then land somewhere around the clouds. So uh, I, I have made some large intentions for the show and for impact to help the world in bigger and better ways. And I'm excited to see the way that's going to go down. So um, I hope that you got a chance to set some really great intentions for yourself and that you have at least a neutral outlook on what this year is going to look like. I know that the last two years people have been like, this is going to be my year. And then that year happened. And <laughs> we're all kind of in a space where we're a little bit nervous about putting those kind of hopes into the ether. But if we can all come to some neutral perspective of, you know, we're not attached to the outcome and we're here to let's see what happens, you know, then I think that we can actually have a really great, surprisingly good year. So now let's get into a few announcements. Um, one, I want you to go to spiritualshitschool.com and check out the new course that I have. It is six workshops in one by, and uh, we are covering awakening, intuition, spirit guides, dreams, card reading, and turning your spiritual passion into a business. It's almost 10 hours of content with loads of tips and questions answered. And this is something that I was going to offer for what I would call a deserving price, considering how much content is involved there. But I am offering it at an introductory level for $111. And it will spike uh, at no said given date, uh, maybe in the next month or so, maybe next week, I'm just going to change the price and raise it when spirit tells me is the right appropriate time. Um, but for now, uh, you can get it for $111, six workshops in one about awakening intuition, spirit guides, dreams, card readings, and turning your passion, spiritual passion into a business. 
And I think that it's well worth it. My Patreon members have gotten the benefit of being able to do our monthly workshops. And if that's something that you're interested in, you can always join patreon.com slash the lovely Aaliyah to be a part of our monthly workshops and become a $10 member. Um, but if that's not your jam, you're more than welcome to buy these workshops on spiritualshitschool.com. So that's cool. Um, you would have an advantage to going to Patreon and becoming a member this month um, because of all the wonderful after content we have per usual. Um, you can become any level member to get access to that. And in fact, today's interview, um, we are we are talking to Thomas Campbell of MBT, my big theory of everything. And so um, we talk for almost 45 more minutes and get super in depth um, because there's so much to cover when we talk about what it's like to live in a simulation. <laughs> so uh, you'll you'll get to hear this interview. This interview was so good and it had so much to offer. And like the first 30 minutes, we're just covering kind of groundwork of the book and theories. And so if you stick with it, if you're not so much a science person, if you stick with the first 30 minutes, what we start, it starts to flow more towards the middle of the interview where um, we get a bit more into the spiritual aspects of that. But I think I get super nerded out about a lot of like physics and metaphysics and things like that. And so it was such a joy. I had so much fun talking to Thomas and I'm sure you guys will really, really enjoy all the information he has to offer. Um, I wanted to say, uh, the next workshop that we do have is February 6th at 10 CST. And we are talking about how to approach healing and trauma wounding from a spiritual perspective. And so obviously I'm not a therapist or psychologist. And so I cannot actually help you heal in, um, you know, more of a material way, but we're going to talk very deeply about what does it look like to approach healing, um, and trauma in a very, uh, you know, practically spiritual way, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, if you want to hear about that, then, you know, check that out. So those are all of my, uh, obligatory announcements. Uh, the last one is, is that if you have followed me on Instagram, and you have gotten a DM from me, it is not me. My account explicitly states that I do not DM. Um, you know, you don't send me a DM. If you do send me a DM, I will read it. Um, but I just don't have a lot of time to respond with all the other stuff that we're trying to do to pr promote free content. And so while I appreciate your beautiful messages and I, I love you all, um, make sure that you know that if anybody does follow you, that is under my, um, it looks like it's under my handle, make sure to check it and see if it's the spelling is correct or if they just put up all their new their posts in the last uh you know week or so and if they're coming to you and saying oh spirit is giving me a message for you pay me 50 bucks it's not me okay don't fall for that shit i'm so sorry for those of you who have already fallen for it um the scam game is very real and karma is too so there's that anyway so I think that's all I have as far as announcements go. Let's get into this super juicy episode. I really hope you guys like it. I did so much research for this episode just to, you know, know my words and stuff. And it was, it was so enlightening for me. It's something that I'm still digesting. So let's check it out right now. Thomas W. Campbell is the author of My Big Toe, The Theory of Everything, trilogy that unifies science and philosophy, metaphysics and physics, mind and matter, purpose and meaning, the normal and the paranormal, as well as shines a light on the common spiritual basis of the world's major religions while placing belief, dogma, and creed into a bigger picture. My Big Toe, MBT, which represents the result and conclusions of his scientific exploration of the nature of existence. 
This overarching model of reality, mind, and consciousness explains the paranormal as well as the normal, places spirituality within a scientific context, solves a host of scientific paradoxes, and provides direction for those wishing to personally experience an expanded awareness of all that is. The attributes assigned by some theologians to their concept of God are very similar to the attributes of LCS, the larger consciousness system, as scientifically derived by Tom. The next big cultural and scientific paradigm shift is virtual reality, as Tom has said for over a decade. Virtual reality is now a more widely accepted concept in the science and technology field. Tom combines a fundamental understanding of consciousness and virtual reality to back up his prediction with a logical and scientific-derived my-big-toe theory. This theory explains most of the remaining big questions in both physics and metaphysics, and his model of consciousness derives quantum mechanics and relativity, eliminating quantum weirdness and builds a scientific foundation under much of what has been previously deemed paranormal. This comprehensive, logical, and scientific explanation of both objective and subjective reality perfectly defines a big theory of everything. A former NASA physicist, Tom works as a large, complex system analyst by day and collects evidential information in the larger consciousness system by night. Tom delivers this information through his unique abilities and experiences that you will not find anywhere else. Please welcome Tom to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Spiritual Shit. I'm your host, Aaliyah Lovely, and today we have Mr. Thomas Campbell, who is a former NASA scientist, a physicist, and a consciousness researcher. Please say hello to everyone today. <laughs> hello, everyone today. <laughs> I'm really excited because today we are talking about consciousness in a way that is uh, very different than the way we've talked about it on the show. Uh, we tend to talk about energy and a lot of mysticism and things like that. But today we're kind of confronting the idea that we might be living in a virtual reality which I find extraordinarily interesting. And I love the way in which you're able to break it down in a very data-based scientific way that makes the paranormal normal. And I love that kind of stuff mm. on our show. So, um, so before we get started, um, and if you can be able to squeeze in your seven years of experience in about five minutes, uh, kind of give everybody a summary of where you've come from, um, what got you on this path uh, to research this kind of thing. Well, that is a long story, but I'll try to make it the, <laughs> as short as I can. Um, how I got onto this path wasn't on purpose. I just kind of accidentally fell into it. And that is, I was a graduate student working on my PhD, and I noticed a, a, a sign that said, uh, learn how to meditate, get by on less sleep, you know, and it had a whole list of things that was good, but the get by on less sleep is what uh, grabbed my attention because as a graduate uh, student in experimental nuclear, you know, you're working with big machines, you know, this is a big Van de Graaff accelerator. And when those things are working, you work, you know, whether that's 24 hours a day or, you know, for two or three days without sleep, it was tough sometimes to, uh, uh, to stay awake long enough to get the research done. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to meditate. I, took $25 and a banana and went to the course. And <laughs> I found it very simple, very easy. I was a natural with the with the meditation. And <clears throat> about three or four months later, just playing around with this new meditation skill that I had, I found out that I could debug software in my mind, much more accurately and much more quickly than I could actually if I was you know, applying myself to it, you know, looking at it. 
mm-hmm. my awake my, my awake mind was much much slower and and less capable than my mind in an altered state of consciousness mm-hmm. so i played with that a little bit and realized that not only did it work uh what i did is i could just scroll the the uh, like the printouts you know i just scroll all that down that had all my code on it and all the lines that uh had a problem with them were would be in red hmm. instead of in black on white so i'd look at it and i kind of rewind and go back to the red one and and i knew every line of code since i'd written the code so it was easy for me to pick them out and remember them and when i went back to my you know, these are the bad old days of computing when you had uh, boxes of cards you know went <laughs> cards through a card punch and i had thousands of cards each box i think held about a thousand cards or so and i had five or six boxes of punch cards and <clears throat> sure enough i'd pull out those statements and i would find a problem on them and sometimes it wasn't a problem in coding it was a problem like the key punch was a little bit off and the hole wasn't exactly in the place that it should have been mm-hmm. so even those kinds of problems which are otherwise impossible to find just by looking at it you can't tell that a punch hole is one tenth of a millimeter you know off yeah. you know offline you just can't tell looking at it so i was able to find these errors that i wouldn't have been able to find on my own with any amount of time so that was the beginning of me being on this path because i went from kind of the typical physicist that says that if you can't measure it it either doesn't exist or if it does it's irrelevant hmm. because measurement means interact interact with it you know if you can't interact with it somehow physically interact with it then it doesn't exist or it's irrelevant so that's a typical materialist viewpoint and that was my viewpoint then but this little thing with the debugging code in your mind completely threw that out the window because <laughs> here was something that there was no physical way to touch it or measure it or interact with it yet it was real it was effective and it was repeatable you know it was it was uh, it was right there you know there was no way to deny it it uh, it worked right so that opened my mind and what physicists do is that they try to model reality that's kind of their job description and i now had a bigger reality to model <laughs> i now had a much bigger space that i knew i lived in that i could operate in uh, beyond the beyond the physical mm-hmm. so oh i don't know i guess i got out of graduate school i i got a job and my boss had read a book called journeys out of the body mm-hmm. by bob monroe and he tossed me the book and said read it and tell me what you think well i did i read it and my opinion was well if this guy's making it up you know he's a pretty good storyteller <laughs> uh you know maybe he'll help himself some books but if he's not making it up wow that's really impressive you know there's a whole new dimension to reality that uh, he's able to explore mm-hmm. and if he can do it why can't you know we do it you know mm-hmm. what's is it special about him or or what so we left it like that until another month or two when it turns out that bob monroe lived not that far away from where we lived it was uh, he wasn't that far away so a bunch of us uh, made an arrangement to go talk to him 
And of course, what we all wanted to know is this guy making it up? You know, is he a storyteller? Is he a, a hustler? You know, <laughs> like a carnival barker, you know, or, <laughs> yeah. or is he for real? So we went out and I talked with him and I found that he was very much for real. You know, he wasn't trying to sell anything. He was just trying to explain what happened to him. And not only that, he had just built a, a building that was going to be a lab for studying consciousness. And he was looking for some scientists that would help him, you know, do it right, you know, with right protocols and, you know, that could actually make science out of it. Mm -hmm. So myself and another friend, Dennis Merrick, electrical engineer, we volunteered. You know, now I'm 20-something at this point. You know, I'm just fresh out of graduate school. I'm like 28 years old. And um, put that in context, I'm 77 years old now. So that was a long, long time ago. What, in a universe far, far away. But anyhow, <clears throat> so we started going out to Bob's lab, working in his lab, building test equipment, um, doing experiments, trying to get this phenomena such that we could measure it. We could find some consistency about it, some logic to it. And Bob was a good teacher. So within a year, year and a half, maybe Dennis and I were both going out of body on demand. We were doing the same thing because that was our deal with Bob. We said, Bob, we'll, we'll work for free, but you have to teach us what you know. Yeah. Because, you know, it's a big difference between talking to or studying somebody else's experience and having your own. Right. And if it's not your own, then it isn't entirely real. You know, it's a different thing altogether. So right. we wanted it to be our own. And he he complied, he did that. So it was our own experience. And my my job on the on the team was to uh, figure out how it worked. You know, I'm the physicist, that's what we do model reality. So it's like, time to go figure out how all this works. <laughs> and Dennis was more into building and, and uh, getting equipment and, and uh, you know, get the lab uh, uh, set up with the so we could make some measurements. So anyway, that's how I got started in it. And mm -hmm. that was 19, early 1970s in that time frame. So I haven't stopped working at it yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's been a it's been a long time. So yeah. I was dual careered. I started my career in physics and started my career in conscious research pretty much the same time, you know, within six months of each other. And been working at both of those steadily ever since. Sometime in the early 2000s, I had written down the things I thought I knew about consciousness from my own experience. And my experience was one of a scientist. What I did is I, I would go into this out-of-body state, and then I would do research there. In other words, uh, let's say we were studying remote viewing or healing or something. Uh -huh. Well, I would change a variable. Well, last time I did it like this and it worked like that. Now I'll do it a little differently. How does that change how it works? Mm -hmm. And then do it a little differently again. And how does that change how it works? So it's this typical scientific uh, boring, you know, uh, <laughs> do it over and over and over and over again until you start to isolate what variables do what. So it's it was um, kind of start from scratch. Mm -hmm. So I spend what, 35 years doing uh, that sort of research, came to some, some conclusions about consciousness, some facts of consciousness, facts that I had, that I had um, discovered with yeah. doing this research. 
And one of those facts was that consciousness is fundamental. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was true because I could do things in consciousness that affected the physical. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't anything I do in the physical that directly affected consciousness. Hmm. So the, the arrow of causality went from consciousness to the physical, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So I knew that consciousness was, was fundamental. It was primary to the physical. It was more fundamental than the physical. And that the physical really was a, was a product of consciousness. So Which is that, a huge discovery because a lot of times scientists, when they're talking, hmm. often ask a lot of questions around consciousness. And they don't really know where to put it. And they're going to kind of like, eh, we'll just we'll put it over here. We're not going to research yeah. it to deal with that too much. So that's a really, really good thing. Yeah, they have no idea, really. They want to measure it. They think consciousness is something created in the brain, that mm -hmm. it's, it's, the, it's a, a phenomena created by the physical when it's just opposite. The right. physical is something that's created by consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that took a while. The writing of the book was like five years in the process because I had to figure it out also myself as I was, as I was writing it. Mm -hmm. But since then, I've learned a lot as well. So you, you keep learning and you keep yeah. growing and it never stops. It's, you know, it's just as a, it's a, it's a study and an investigation that um, probably will never, never end. Yeah, so I've, I've learned a lot since. And if you've been to my website and the uh, YouTube, you know, I've got thousands of hours out there. Of, of, uh... <laughs> I know I was reading and watching lots of them. Um, what I find really interesting, if we can, is to, to go back a little bit because you you didn't just kind of come upon this after, you know, doing your science and your degree and then it kind of stumbled upon it. You had from a child been able to travel out of body, have astral experiences and have really a lot of interaction with entities, as I understand it, um, that even gave you a message about your wife. Can you tell them that story? Oh, yeah. Well, I did when I was, I don't know, six, seven years old. And it's not that uncommon for right. young children to uh, have experiences in the non-physical or have non-physical friends or whatever. It's, it's pretty common among children to experience that. Yeah, I was um, uh, approached by a couple of non-physical beings just as I was falling asleep that started up a conversation. And, you know, that sounds pretty normal. And if I had told my parents about it, they'd figure, oh, he was just dreaming, right? Yeah. But, so kids have these, and I did. And I talked to these guys, and uh, they took me out of body. They did something to me, and then poof, there I was floating in my bedroom. And um, they told me, go, and I like, go how, you know, and I, I finally figured out it was my intent would make things go. And I up through the wall, I went and down in the yard, and I started playing with it. And it was a lot of fun. Um, so that was my first out of body at, let's say, six and a half, seven. And I learned then they came back afterwards. And I kind of pushed on them to, to let, teach me how to do that myself. I didn't like the idea that I had to wait for them to come and do this. So they did teach me and I was able to do it myself. And they began to teach me things in the non-physical, how to get around in the non-physical, how to interact, how to keep your mind focused and steady. And so I, it was like taking classes. Hmm. And I did that for a while until I got to a point where, uh, 
they said, we don't want you to grow up and be too strange because that won't be good. You know, you're going to, you know, it won't be good for your psychological development. So we're going to stop this for a while. And they did, they put a lid on it. And after that, not only did they not come and get me out, I couldn't get out. I was kind of locked in for a while. So it wasn't then until I was out with Monroe, right, from seven years to 27, you know, 20 years later, mm -hmm. that I was out there that it all started to come back. And a lot of the experiences that I had turned out were experiences that Bob Monroe was having, mm -hmm. you know, so we kind of made a connection between things that he was doing and getting things that I had that I had done and gotten. So that was a that I started early and I learned a lot early. And I think that was all just in preparation for when I actually got to the point where I was grown up enough that I could do something more serious with it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I had lots of premonitions. You talk about uh, about my wife. Yeah, I was I was uh, about 14, I think, and I always had these I don't know, I didn't call them entities, they was just something in my mind, and I could ask questions and get answers. And I knew not to ask trivial questions. These had to be important, you know, big questions kind of thing. And uh, at, at 14, you know, you're, you're uh, up to your eyebrows and hormones and things are changing uh, very, very fast in your mind. And I asked them about, uh, you know, would I ever, you know, find a a female, you know, a girlfriend. And uh, they told me, yes, I would. And I said, oh, great. Where is she? And they said, well, she's two years old now and lives in a different state. And I'm going, two years old? That's not going to work. Yeah. And they just kind of were, I think, snickering a little bit, but uh, they were having some fun as well. But they told me a little bit about her. And uh, they, that I would meet her when I was 35, and that uh, we would have a very good relationship. It would be, it would be, it would be good. So I'm thinking that's terrible. I'm 14, <laughs> and I got to wait till I'm 35, you know. <laughs> but um, in any case, it worked out that way. When I was 35, she and I met, got together, and have been together ever since. Hmm. And I was told things at various times. This is maybe interesting. Uh, I had met another woman toward my senior year in college, and we planned to get married. And I remembered these this other things, and, and no, this was not the woman. It was not the same woman. And I said, well, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't want to get married and then not have the marriage work. That's not my idea. Mm. Should, I, should I just call that off? And they said, no. You need to go through with it. This is part of your growing step. This this will be, it'll be good for you and it'll be good for her. You'll both grow up in this experience and you need that experience to get yourself ready for the one that does, mm -hmm. you know, that is, is the one that we told you about. So I said, okay, I didn't feel real good about that, but uh, it worked out exactly the way they said. They told me about the children that we would have. Hmm. and basically even what they would look like, their sex, uh, all sorts of things. And it always came out exactly that way. Wow. So, yes, I'd had some, um, a lot of paranormal experiences. And the, the 
what, eight years or nine years that I was going out to Monroe Laboratories regularly. I mean, Dennis and I had, you know, paranormal experiences every, you know, every time we went out there, you know, and so <laughs> it got to the point that it was, it wasn't that unusual, you know, to do something that was really wild was eh, just another day at the lab, you know, that sort of, <laughs> that sort of thing. So yeah. it, uh, you kind of adjust to your life, you know, however, it, whatever twists and turns it takes, you end up adjusting to it and it becomes the new normal for yeah. you. So all of that was normal for me. And then, like I say, the next 35 years trying to figure out why does it work that way? What are the limitations? Right. What's important? What's not? You know, what's the structure here? So what I did is I took all the facts of consciousness that I had developed in that 35 year time, just doing research. And of course, I had another whole bucket full of facts of the physical world that I'd learned as a physicist. And I said, there needs to be some understanding, some overall overarching understanding that explains both of these, mm -hmm. you know, all the things I found out in my out of body travels and my physics. So that was kind of my goal to come up with that. And when I wrote the book, my book, my big toe is the name of it, my big theory of everything. It's a it's a theory of consciousness, pretty much. It um, it's a little hard to read, as I think you found out, you know, it's a little challenging. I, it's a little hard. <laughs> yeah. If you it's it's written, you know, by a scientist right. or other left brain logical process kind of people yeah. because they don't have an on-ramp mm -hmm. people who are more right brain and have bigger pictures there's lots and lots of books you know and that they can get that will help yeah. them move down that path but for those of us who are left brain logical process types there isn't any kind mm -hmm. of path you know you pick up uh, your typical engineer or physicist or Scientists will pick up the Bhagavad Gita. You get about six pages in it and say, well, some guy on a chariot, you know, having war, <laughs> uh, talking about things that don't make sense. And they'll just put it down. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to them. They can't, you know, it's basically poetry that they don't understand. So I wrote my book to be logical, mm -hmm. to be so the, the scientific mind could read it and understand what was going on, which makes it just a little challenging I think for for readers who don't have logical process, you know, who are who are more who are more right-brained and holistic in their viewpoint, they have to struggle. Yeah. They have to struggle. I, you know, a bit. I, I went through it and I thought, for the most part, like I, I kind of enjoy reading very dense texts, like things that have a lot of like you have to really think and kind of chew like chew on it before you can mm -hmm. kind of move to the next thing. And so, since I was more limited for time, I was like, I gotta get on this or whatever. But I got really. Um, kind of caught in a lot of the meditation stuff because I at least understood those portions of mm -hmm. like how meditation works. I'm a, a meditator myself and, and, and spent time with that for a while. And I thought, you know, I don't know that I'll be doing it justice if I continue to speed through this for the sake of this interview and not really like digest a lot of that, that mm -hmm. information. Um, so, so with that, I want to kind of like talk to our listeners and I, I hope that we can speak in a way that we don't go over their head, because I think that your concepts mm -hmm. are brilliant. Um, so first, like we, we talk about my theory of everything. His book is called my big toe. T-O-E, theory of everything. Um, and the, the concept that we are living in a virtual reality. I would love for you to explain 
one, why you think that is, but kind of the, the parallel concept to the, the avatar essentially that you were mentioning. Okay. Well, let me make it sound a little more reasonable by <laughs> just um, kind of following what we know about virtual reality games, okay, like The Sims. Mm. Now, I'm kind of old, so I'm not up on what the latest games are. So <laughs> if, just have to bear with me. I'll talk about World of Warcraft and Sims, <laughs> even though they're pretty dated, I guess. Mm. But in any case, uh, what we, we just know a few things about those and all virtual realities basically work the same way. They have a player and they have an avatar and the player makes all the choices for the avatar. That's the player's function. They have to tell the avatar what to do, when to do it. And there's the computer, that's the server. And the computer sends information to the player. The player looks at it, makes choices for the avatar sends those choices back to the computer. The computer computes what difference those choices make. You know, how does that affect others and, and so on? And then computes how the game's going to flow, sends it back to the player, and the player makes choices and so on. That's the way that works. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a very simple thing. Basically, it just has two elements to it, and that's a computer and a player. There really is no virtual reality. Virtual reality is just a construct inside the computer. It's just information. So you have a player and a computer. Now let's look at the viewpoint of a character in The Sims. Okay, now from their viewpoint, the computer that's serving their game, now we're a Sims character, we've got to think like the, the Sims character, where their reality comes from is invisible to them. Mm -hmm. It's not like they can go open up a door someplace and find their computer that's computing their reality. The computer has to be non-physical to their virtual reality. They're in a virtual reality. Now, their consciousness, which is the player, is also non-physical from the viewpoint of the virtual reality. Right. So the, the, the Sims character actually thinks that he's the one that's conscious. Right. He doesn't know that there's a player. He thinks that he's the one that's conscious from his perspective. But he's making all those choices. He identifies that way. So in a virtual reality, from the avatar's viewpoint, the player and the computer are both non-physical. Now, what's really going on is really there's a player and a computer just having a conversation, right? The way we talk, they're just passing data back and forth. All right, now, how does that apply to us? Mm -hmm. So here we are. If we are in a virtual reality, then we're not going to find the computer. The computer has to be in some other reality that's non-physical from our viewpoint inside this virtual reality. Right. And the player that's making all our choices has to be non-physical. Not only that, but the player and the computer have to be in the same reality because they're talking to each other. They're actually passing data back and forth. So they have to be in the same reality, made of the same sort of stuff. So if you think of that, then our bodies are the avatars. Consciousness is the computer. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is a non-physical thing. I mean, how much does consciousness weigh? You know, how much volume, you know, how, what kind of, you know, how much consciousness can you put in a, you know, a jar of a certain size? Well, those things don't make sense because it's not physical. Right. You know, anything physical, you can tell how much does it weigh? How much volume does it take up? Those are the ways that those physical things are like that. Consciousness is not like that. It's not a physical thing. So consciousness is the computer. We are players 
we are subsets of that consciousness system. So there's this thing I call the larger consciousness system out there. We can maybe just call that source. And it can configure part of itself as a computer because consciousness is an information system. Mm -hmm. That's really what consciousness is all about. You know, what are you aware of? Oh, I'm aware of that. Well, what's that? Well, describe it. You know, it's information. So consciousness is awareness. Awareness is about getting information, processing information, mm -hmm. sending information back out. That's what consciousness does. It's an information system. So this information system configures part of itself as a computer, a server. It configures part of itself as us, which I call an individuated unit of consciousness, just another piece of that consciousness system. Mm -hmm. But it's a piece that has its own free will, so it can make its own choices and its own decisions. As the player or as the avatar? As the player. The player makes all the choices. So your physical body is just a, a computed thing. Physical things, our physical reality is a computed reality, a virtual reality, a simulation, or the way physicists talk about it, it's information-based. Mm -hmm. That's a way to say virtual reality and simulation without stirring up a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, excitement about it that they can't answer. So they just say it's an information-based reality. And many physicists uh, you know, agree with that. We live in an information-based reality. And they, they agree with that because physics tells them that's the way it has to be. We, you know, if they do, you know, these fellows that go over to CERN and they, they smash things together and see the little particles that come out and try to understand what's happening. If they try to model, say, an electron as a little chunk of mass with a charge, which is what we learned in, in school that yeah. electron was, they can't get the right answer. That doesn't work. Mm. That, that doesn't give them anything useful. So they see that an electron is a point, just a point with the attribute of charge. In other words, it's just information. Right. That's, how you, that's how you'd model an electron in a computer. You, you make it a point and you give it the attribute of charge. Mm -hmm. So they realize that from physics that we do live in an information-based reality. But because they are materialists, you know, deep, deep down inside, you know, there's a materialist heart beating in there. <laughs> they, uh, they don't know what to say past that. So their science and their experiments say we live in a, in a information based reality, we live in a virtual reality. But because, you know, if somebody says, well, that's interesting, you know, how does that work? Why is it? Where's the computer? Is Who's the programmer? Da, 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 da. All these questions that come up, they have no idea what to do with that. So they don't, say anything and they try to underplay it so that doesn't come up and they don't have to deal with that so physics pretty much agrees that this is a virtual reality but they don't like to talk about it i think that's, that that's yeah i mean completely right because i mean those were my next questions because i'm going hmm all right well because uh, virtual reality, I think the first thing that comes to people, they watch the matrix, you know, and they're mm -hmm. like, oh no, we're sitting in some cogs somewhere and there's some evil overlord that's like ruling our actual universe. And it sparks a lot of fear. Um, mm -hmm. But at least the way that I've heard you talk about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's more of uh, essentially the metaphors that you're using to help us equate the understanding of how consciousness actually works. Is that right? Yes, that okay. is right. All of the things that I say are basically metaphors. 
because this consciousness thing that is non-physical isn't something you can reach out and grab a hold of, mm -hmm. right? It's non-physical. So we deal with it in terms of concepts mm -hmm. and metaphors is a way to deal with it. So when I talk about the source, the larger conscious system, that's, that's a metaphor for source. That's the, that thing from which all else springs, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and I talk about an individuated unit of consciousness. Okay, that's you and that's me. We're, we're individuated units of consciousness. Well, that's just a metaphor that defines some subset of this consciousness that makes its own choices, that has free will. So, yes, I looked, when I made my model, I looked at all the facts that I had, and I started to put together a model to model those facts. And everywhere I saw a function that I had in my own research, you know, convinced myself this was a fact, then I made something up to, to be in that place, to, to do that function. Mm -hmm. So I knew there were, you know, there was uh, us, you know, that we have our free will, that we make choices. So there's an IUOC. And I knew what? that we were part. There, there's an IUOC, an individual unit of consciousness. So I knew there was also something bigger, something of which we belong to, something in which we connect, a, a system that kind of has rules and ties it all together. That's also, so that's the larger conscious system. So all of these things aren't because I thought they were good ideas or that this is the, this is necessarily the truth, the way it is. This is, it's just a model. It's a model of reality. And it's made mostly of metaphors. Now, I think the, the computer metaphor turned out to be pretty good metaphor because metaphors can be, you know, pretty accurate. They can, they can sometimes describe very closely something, or metaphors can be kind of, uh, what can we say, uh, you know, very um, airy and uh, um, abstract. Mm -hmm. You know, like if I were to say, oh, she had eyes that were as blue as the deep blue sea. Well, I don't mean that literally, you know, you know what sea, you know, how deep, uh, you know, that's not meant to, you're not meant to dig in that, right. down in that. You just take it at the, at the value of, picture. yeah, you just make a picture and you go on with it. Well, that's kind of what a, my model is. It's made out of metaphors. And the, the thing is with models is you don't judge a model based on you know, what, uh, how well you like it, or whether it, uh, you know, you know, verifies your own beliefs or something, you, you judge a model based on, can it produce answers? Mm -hmm. Can it explain things that you know, happen? Does mm -hmm. it explain the results of experiments? You know, how good is it? Does it explain your experience? Now, my model is what I called a big toe, because Einstein's toe was just one that that explained all of the material world, basically quantum physics and relativity. Right. Well, mine explains all of that, but it also explains the internal world, the subjective world. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger picture. So right. once you understand consciousness, you understand everything subjective as well as everything objective. So if you'd like to know, you know, why am I struggling and have a hard time? You know, why uh, am I not happy and full of joy? And why do I get upset and have all these fears? Well, my model will tell you why. Mm -hmm. It can explain very clearly, you know, why you feel the way you do, why your life is the way it is. 
So it explains the, the um, subjective side just as well as it explains the objective side, which is physics. And my model explains physics to a much higher accuracy than contemporary physics. Yeah. So contemporary physics doesn't understand why particles should best be modeled as probability distributions, because quantum physics models particles as probability distributions. Why is that? Well, physicists don't know. All they know is if they do that, it works. They can get, <laughs> they can get the right answers. But they have no idea why this should be true. Mm -hmm. So they have this idea that when the measurement, when the when a measurement's made, a, a probabilistic protoparticle suddenly turns into an actual physical particle. And there's this big mystery about the collapse of the wave function into a physical particle. Well, that's because they just don't understand how it works. Mm -hmm. That's they're trying to squeeze quantum physics into a materialist model and it, it won't fit. That's mm -hmm. trying to put a square peg in a round hole and those corners just won't let it go in there. <laughs> so my model explains that it makes quantum physics not weird at all. Mm -hmm. It explains, well, of course, there are no particles. These are virtual particles, and they're all probability distributions. Now, can and, you explain probability distribution? Well, probability distribution is just a it's just a mathematical thing that explains, you know, with let's say with a with the uh, double slit experiment. So a particle goes through a hole in a barrier, and it's a probable particle, not an actual physical particle at that point because no measurements been made. Now, where is that particle going to hit after it goes through that that hole so it goes through the hole and you'd think that it would just pile up in a pile right behind the hole that's what it would do because that's what physical particles ought to do mm -hmm. but it doesn't it will make it will make uh, rings they called newton rings it'll make rings around that hole so there'll be a little pile of particles at the center but there'll be a ring then around those and outside that ring there'll be another bigger ring and outside that ring there'll be another bigger ring and why is that why would they distribute themselves in rings like that? You see, that means they have to move off to the side between the rings. No particle ever goes only in the space of the rings and so on. So they would say con conventional quantum physics says that the, the probabilistic particle has a probability of being somewhere on the screen, which is the, the thing behind the hole in the, mm -hmm. in the barrier. And they do calculations to see where, where those probabilities are. And that's the probability distribution. It has a certain probability of landing here and a certain probability of landing there and so on. So they can calculate in terms of probability, but it's just one particle. Right. It's just one particle. So the one particle comes in and bingo, it lands over. It, you know, they, they take the measurement with, let's say, a piece of film that's the, that's the screen there, it hits there and it makes a little flash of light when it hits that, that screen. So that's the measurement then is where it hits the screen. So why does it do that? So they come up with a lot of mathematics to explain that. But, and well, I shouldn't even say that. They don't explain it. They, they have some mathematics that will help them get justify the right answer. <laughs> yeah, that'll justify it and will tell them so they can predict where it's going to hit. Mm -hmm. But they have no idea why that math should work. Mm -hmm. So that's it. But now in my model, uh, the basic logic of the physical world as a virtual reality, you have to, you know, I have to build it up from scratch. 
you find out that that the way the system is able to determine something new, you know, the result of some unknown is that it has it takes all the possibilities. What are all the possibilities that could happen? Mm-hmm. And what are the probabilities of each one of those possibilities? And then it takes a random draw out of that probability distribution. And that's how it decides where things go. Mm-hmm. So now once you, you had understand- something super interesting to talk about this, which I think uh, like that was very related to manifestation. And I heard it in an interview or something like that, thinking about like the, the probability distribution and how we're able to essentially swing our probability in our favor by mm-hmm. our intention. Can you explain yes. that? Well, yes. The way, you know, the way that works is that as a feedback mechanism so that we here who are making these choices can get some idea of how we're doing, the feedback that we get is that we can modify the probabilities in that probability distribution. So, so when they, when something is going to happen, let's say we'll talk about health here with this. If you have a, you have a lump in your neck and you're not sure what it is, but it worries you. So you start using your, your mind to get rid of it, you know, to make it not a cancer lump. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're modifying the probabilities of the possibilities. So you're taking those possibilities that say, you know, malignant and lowering the probability on those and taking those possibilities that say benign and raising the the probabilities on those so that when the measurements made, that is somebody goes in and does a biopsy to see what's in there, then random draw from the probability distribution of the possibilities, you have a much higher probability now of it being benign because you used your intent to modify future probability. This completely backs up my theory that the the law of attraction shouldn't be called a law because it is not always, it doesn't always happen like that, but you essentially in your manifestation intention are swaying the pendulum, right? Right. You're swaying the possibilities. You're, You're reordering the probability of the possibilities. So in your law of attraction, if you, have your intent focused on a particular event or thing happening, you're increasing the probability that will happen. Now, whether it happens or not depends on a lot of things. One, if you're trying to get something to happen that only has a one in a million probability of happening, oh, I would like a gold brick to fall out of the sky and land in my front yard. <laughs> that would be handy. You know, I could yeah. I could use a couple hundred thousand that. dollars. Yeah. So <laughs> You know, now that's not likely to happen. So because that's a one maybe in a hundred million or one in a billion chance that that happens, then you're probably not going to get that to happen because even if you take that probability that's one in a billion and move it all the way down to only one in a million, it's still not likely to happen. Or even one in a hundred, it's still not likely to happen. So you can modify the probability and things aren't gonna happen anyway because You just can't move it that far. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that your ability to modify those probabilities has to do with your mind and your consciousness. If If your mind is busy and all full of chatter and noise, then you're not going to be able to focus much energy. You're not going to be able to focus much power 
on changing those probabilities. Mm-hmm. Your mind doesn't focus on it. It's kind of flitting around, around it. It's on it. It's off of it. It's back on it. It's all over the place. That's the way most people's minds work. Their, their, their minds are kind of all over the place. And you're not going to be very effective that way. The other thing is you have to have a very clear focus of exactly how you want to change that probability. And if that's fuzzy, yeah, I'd like it to be better. Well, what's better? What defines better? Hmm. You see, that's not very clear. So if you're clear with your focus, and if you have a tight focus, then you have what I call a low noise mind. Your mind's not so noisy. It's got a very strong signal and very low noise. Now you can modify those future probabilities much more effectively than you can if you don't have you know, a low noise mind. So it depends on the person. It depends on how sincere they are. Hmm. You know, if you're not all that sincere, you just want something. Oh, I want a gold brick. I really would like a gold brick in my yard. And that is really just a wish. Wishes don't have much power behind them. Hmm. A wish is a very weak thing. Mm -hmm. But if you can focus, if you can have that sincerity behind that intent, to where it's something not just out of your intellect, but something comes from a very deep space inside you. You know, it's really you at the being level. Yeah. And you're putting it out from that being level. Now you're a whole lot more effective than you are if you're just making wishes. Now, the difference is the wishes just come out of your intellect. Oh, I'd like that to happen. That would be convenient. But that doesn't make anything happen much. You know, I mean, it does just a little, but it doesn't make enough changes to, to, to be noticeable. So some people are good at manifesting. Some people are not so good. And it just has to do with clarity, focus, and sincerity. Hmm. That's, that's the difference. So yeah, it is a function of consciousness. It's, it's part of the way our consciousness system is put together. So that's, that's why we have the placebo effect. The mm. placebo effect works the same way. You have a, a doc and he says, Oh, here's a new pill. And this is going to really make your liver work better. And you're going to be so much better after you take this pill and it gives you a, a big positive plus up talk, then that pill will make people better. Even mm. if it's just sawdust, you know, and there's really nothing in it, it'll make people better. Because what it'll do it will give them some hope. It will give them positive attitude. Oh, good. I got the magic pill. I'm going to get better now. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they stop putting negative energy into it, oh, no, this is terrible. I know it's going to be cancer. I know it's going to be, you know, they now they're feeding the problem. Right. They're raising the probability that it's going to be cancer because mm-hmm. they're worried about it. So you, you create what you fear. Oh, because because yes. what you what you fear is where you put a lot of your mental energy. This is super important, you guys who are listening. Um, just because when we t- we talk loads about manifestation on the show, and I, I've always kind of said I felt like manifestation when we've talked about it in its first wave, anyway, of law of attraction that they're kind of missing something there. Um, when we talk about uh, you know being positive all the time and you know like vision boards and the whole deal. deal. And so people are always talking up very often about like, if I can, if I can suppress my fears and just, just essentially physically say, 
I'm going to be positive and I don't have these negative thoughts mm-hmm. or whatever, but internally they're suppressing and they're feeling and they're mm-hmm. trying to do something with it. It doesn't change the energy in which the output is actually happening. Exactly. So, so. suppressing your fear is actually worse than not right. suppressing your fear. <laughs> it's uh, the more, you know, the, the bigger the fear, the more energy you put into that fear, the more time you spend afraid, worrying about, you know, those outcomes. So we make our fears come true because we modify the probability such that they do come true. If, if it's a fear of, let's say, not being liked or a fear of being inadequate, it's the same way. If you fear that you're inadequate, maybe not good enough, you will act in ways to make that seem like it's true. Mm-hmm. In other words, you will be reticent. You won't actually step forward and do something. You'll stay in the background. You'll do this and that. And people look at you and they say, well, you know, she's kind of inadequate. <laughs> it's not because you're really inadequate. It's because your fear makes you act as if you're inadequate. And of course, you can do just the opposite. You can feel inadequate. And instead of becoming a shrinking violet, you can become arrogant and forceful and pushy because you're inadequate. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's another strategy. But again, it's the same way. So you're pushy and you're forceful and you're demanding. And people find that not very nice and <laughs> not very adequate. And they don't like it. And there you are back in the same spot. Right. You see, so however it is, you decide to uh, pretend that the fear isn't there, whether it's by being a shrinking violet or by being aggressive, you end up making that fear come true. You put yourself in a situation that creates what the fear is afraid of. Mm. So it's all part of the same thing, the placebo effect, the law of attraction. Uh, there's lots of things that fall into that, yeah. cate- that category, but we have this ability to modify future probability with our intent. Is this where you kind of talk about people being able to predict the future? Well, you can't, you can't predict the future Precisely, what you can do is look at those future probabilities. Mm-hmm. The probabilities, you know, the future is just probability. It's not done. It's not deterministic. It's not like this will happen and nothing can ever keep that from happening. It's that certain things are more likely to happen than others, right? That's the possibilities and the probabilities. Would that explain kind of how some people who are psychic or have some of those gifts and have a lot of premonitions, are they just better readers of the probabilities? Yes, absolutely. They've learned how to get data out of that probability distribution. So they can tell you a lot about maybe how you are or, you know, attitudes you have and things like that, but they can also predict things. And many of those probabilities are pretty strong. Mm-hmm. You know, that this is likely to happen this way. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, just like we were talking about, if if um, you are very inadequate and feel negative towards yourself, well, there's all kinds of things I can predict about you, <laughs> you know, yeah. right? I can predict a lot of things, you know, your life is going to be a struggle, you're gonna have trouble with relationships, you know, we could just go through a whole bunch of things. And I could tell you about you, just mm-hmm. by knowing that mm-hmm. fact. So yes, they, they uh, read the database, you know, people who remote view are mm-hmm. basically getting data out of the database. People who uh, see ours are getting data out of the database. So what happens is the, the system, because it decides things that are new that have to happen from taking a random draw from the probability distribution of the possibilities, 
it needs to know what all the possibilities are and their probabilities. Mm. So it has to have that database available to it because it's day-to-day, moment-to-moment choices that it has to render in this virtual reality are based on those probabilities and possibilities. So it creates this database called the Future Probable Database. And it keeps updating that database as things change because, again, those probabilities are changing all the time. So now as time goes on, that probable future database becomes past. Mm -hmm. Everything that could have happened and the probability that it would have, whereas in probability was every, everything that could happen and the probability that it will. So this, you know, this is everything that, that might have happened in the past, but some of it didn't and some of it did. What actually did is just a little thread through that database. So you want to read past life, you want to get data, you know, somebody hands you somebody's old gold pocket watch that, you know, your great, great grandfather had or something, and you want to do some psychometry, which is, you, you know, you handle it and you see what's going on and maybe connect with the people and see what was happening. Well, all that is, is getting data out of that database. Mm. The fact that that pocket watch exists is in the database and who it was related to and who had it and what they did with it and what those people were like, that's in the database too. They call Get that the Akashic records. That's the right. It's the just, it's, the database. It's a, yeah. The database is called the Akashic records. What about and, the entities that you interact with? And, you know, if, if we're in this like uh, process of pulling data out as the avatar and, or even as the player, um, who are the external, uh, essentially entities that you end, end up interacting with as far as your model goes? Well, let's just talk, uh, and as about out of body, that'd be very the first thing, because yeah. when people go out of body, they often run into other sorts of beings, other kinds of characters in an, in an out of body. And out of body is a single player virtual reality. Okay. The only thing that's fundamental is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Any, any reality, any situation, any place you are where you experience an experiential reality is a virtual reality. Experience requires context. It requires rules. You know, it's not experience can't be defined if there aren't rules and there isn't context. That means that there has to be some structure to it. And that structure is what defines it as a virtual reality. So an out of body is actually a single player game that the larger conscious system offers. And you are there and you run into people. Now, those people possibly could be another entity like yourself, but Mm -hmm. most likely they're NPCs, non-player characters, characters Mm -hmm. generated by the larger conscious system in order to provide you with a set of interesting choices that you can grow from. Mm -hmm. So the out-of-body experience is really, for the most part, a single-player game, you know, that the system hands to you. And depending on what you want to experience, the kind of things you're trying to learn, where you are, then you will get a, an out-of-body situation that plays to that, that mm-hmm. gives you the thing. Same with your dreaming. Mm. The dream reality, another virtual reality. Yeah. When you die, you wake up in another virtual reality. You know, they're all virtual realities, and each one gives you an opportunity to make choices. And in dreams, night dreams, and say out of bodies, you get opportunities to make choices that you wouldn't be able to make here. 
Right. You know, there's just choices, things that's not going to happen to you here. So it gives you a wider spectrum of choices. And choices are important because there's a purpose to all of this. There's a purpose of why we have the virtual reality. Why would the conscious system make a virtual reality? Mm -hmm. And the purpose is that information systems evolve by lowering their entropy. Now that sounds very physics-like, right? But I'll um, tell you what that means. Hold on. Like, it's so crazy because you just went through four things that I was going to ask questions. I literally have the question <laughs> sitting right here and I was like, he's so intuitive. He's just knocking one after the other. You're making my job very easy. So <laughs> let's describe entropy and then we can get okay. into why okay. consciousness. En so yeah. Entropy is a measure of disorder. That's one way of looking at it. It's also a measure of the potential or ability to do something, mm -hmm. to do work. Okay, so for instance, in a in a information system, if all the bits in an information system are random, then there is no information. Right. They're all random bits. Nothing means anything. No information. So you take those bits that are all disordered and order a couple of them. Now you put some bits that are ordered in some way. Those ordered bits create information and those ordered bits this little bunch of bits over here you can make that a symbol for something or a metaphor for something so it could mean all sorts of things but it's significant everything random there's no significance no order to it so an information system evolves grows by lowering its entropy by creating information and the more meaningful and significant the information is well that's even lower entropy it orders things more it has more meaning, maybe, if it's a metaphor than just a simple, you know, a very simple thing. But there's order even just in structure. Just the mm -hmm. simple, you know, geometric order has information in it. If I go up, down, up, down, what comes next? Oh. Up, right? Well, how'd you know that? Well, because there's information in that, you know, there was a series there that was repeating. So just the, that little pattern, up, down, up down and what's next that creates information so the system starts just being able to um, differentiate between a and b this and that you know one and a zero and that's the that's the you might call it the the original cell of consciousness that's all it can do it mm -hmm. just knows that it can be this way or that way and they're different somehow mm -hmm. you know well, that's a one and a zero. And if you can do that, then you can say, well, I could be this way and this way, and then that way and that way. Well, that's like a one, one, zero, zero. Hmm. You see? So through evolution, you can take just that ability to be this way or that way and turn it into a very complex set of information, of hmm. meaning, of significance. So consciousness evolves by lowering its entropy. Now you yeah. had an interview with somebody that I listened to Rupert something, um, where you guys yeah. were debating over, <laughs> I can hear it in your voice, yeah. uh, debating yeah. over the difference philosophically of, mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't believe that consciousness, uh, evolves and uh, that you guys, yeah. he had a whole deal of, of why that essentially we come from love. And then we come down mm -hmm. here when we struggle to get back to love. Right. And then you had a point where you were like, that doesn't make any damn sense because <laughs> why would we then come down here and do all the struggle or whatever? And I think a lot of people are looking for that answer in their own, like, why are we here? You know, mm -hmm. they have this kind of awakening and they're like, what is the whole point of us coming from consciousness or coming from love or coming from whatever, okay. and then coming down here and playing this video game. That seems really, really tough, um, mm -hmm. you know, in order to just 
go back? You know, what's the right. point? Your, right. your well, point is evolution, right? It's evolution. And I can hopefully in a few minutes uh, kind of take through those steps that I can show them just not only why, but what our purpose is and, and why it's yes. that way. And, and that is, okay, so we have this, this very uh, crude consciousness information system that's evolving. Now, it's just a natural system. It's not a supernatural or anything. It's just a natural system. It's a piece of consciousness. It's evolving. And it's trying to get more and more complexity, more and more information, more understanding, you know, more things. So it can do arithmetic, you know, one plus one is one, one, you know, it can do things like that. So it figures a lot of things out just doing that. But it gets to a point where it starts to become uh, a slower learning process. In other words, the, the learning plateaus. Right. And that's because it's just one monolithic consciousness. So what does it do? Same things that cells did when they got limited by just what a single cell could produce in our biology. They split and did multiple cells. And multiple cells started to work together to make a, a, you know, a thing that was not just a single cell, but a multiple cell critter. Because that's more complicated and more ordered. And what does that mean? It's lower entropy. So good, that's part of its evolution. So it did that, and it made us. So this larger conscious system created subsets of itself that are individuated units of consciousness, you and I, and gave us free will because otherwise it really wouldn't have accomplished anything. It just would have been itself again. So it had to give us free will, and then we interact. And when we interact with each other, there's so many more possibilities of a whole bunch of things with free will interacting than there is with just one thing. One thing is extremely limited just to its own ideas. But when you get different, different subsets that have different experiences, they have different ideas, and suddenly there's, there's a lot of value in that. And that, like I said, our biological cells did the same thing. There was a lot of value in making a multi-celled creature. It was more survivable. It lasted longer. It, it, was, it could do more things. Mm. So it evolves this way. Well, it got to a point where this evolution of lowering entropy stalled out again. And the reason it stalled out is that we evolve by making choices. So we make choices. And whether if those choices move us toward lower entropy, we evolve. If those choices move us toward higher entropy, we de-evolve. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the way it works. But now here was all these little chunks of consciousness just interacting with each other. And my model for this is, you know, think of a big chat room, you know, because what consciousness does is basically communicates. It interacts, you know, with sending messages back and forth. So it's like a great big chat room. And there are no rules, really, other than protocol for communicating. Those are the only rules. So what are you going to learn there? Well, not very quickly, because mm -hmm. there's no consequences to anything you do. Right. You know, it's totally devoid of consequences. So because the system started to slow down, it realized that it needed an environment that produced more consequences. What that means, it needed an environment that had a tight rule set. These are the rules. You have to work by these rules because once you have rules, you have strategies, you have ways that work better than other ways. You know, you get a game. You, you have science. <laughs> you have science. Yeah, you have possibilities. You have lots of choices. So it needed a richer environment in order to help it continue to evolve. So it created a virtual reality. Now, it didn't program one. What it did is it got a, a rule set together. Say, well, here's a bunch of rules that seem like they'll work. 
and it got the initial conditions. In that case, it was a it was a ball of uh, plasma, very high energy, very uh, dense, very high temperature. And then when it hits the run button, then that ball of plasma changes according to the rule set. Okay. Well, that's our Big Bang theory, right? It starts with the ball of plasma, and then it expands, and we have our universe, and we have suns and planets, and eventually us. You know, so that's I think so. It started with a rule set and a set of initial conditions. Hit the run button and let this simulation, this virtual reality, just evolve on its own. Now, of course, it didn't get it right the first time. <laughs> it probably went along and exploded. You know, it uh, it didn't work. It fell apart. It, that would uh, happen to the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another question. We can get to that. But anyway, so okay. it, it didn't work very well. So it changes the numbers, you know, fiddles with the rule set, do it again. Fiddles with the rule set, do it again. Mm -hmm. And science has some very good uh, um, facts that support this. The, you know, the scientists uh, uh, have a, a set of like five, what they call cosmic uh, constants, that if any one of them changed, even in its like 10th decimal point, the universe would become unstable and would disappear. You know, it would all fall apart. So they're very surprised because it says, well, how? How do you have these five separate constants, all perfect, all tuned right down to the 10th decimal point? And if anything changed down there at that 10th decimal point, the whole thing would fall apart. Mm -hmm. Gee, it sounds like it was made just for us. You know, how could that happen? Well, it happens because that's how you build a simulator's trial and error. All right, that one didn't that one didn't last long enough. Let's twiddle with the numbers a little bit. And eventually, if you do enough trial and error, you'll end up with a system that's tuned right down to as many decimal places as you need in order to make it last long enough to be effective. So that's why we have a virtual reality. Consciousness created it as an entropy reduction simulation, a trainer for we now. Reduction now, simulation. Yeah, so it's an entropy reduction trainer for individuated units of consciousness. So that's why we have the simulation. And now the you and I could get out of the chat room without any consequences. We could log on to this game. And the way it happens is we are an individuated unit of consciousness and we just take a piece of ourselves. I call that a free will awareness unit. It's just a subset mm -hmm. of ourselves. And that subset doesn't have any intellectual knowledge, but it has, it's representative of us, our quality, our entropy. And that is what logs on to this avatar in this virtual reality game called a human body. You see, so that free will awareness, unit, it's a piece of your IUOC logs on. And because it doesn't have any intellect, everything that it is in its experience is in its experience while it was, while it was logged onto that avatar. Right. So it begins to identify with that avatar. It thinks it is that avatar because it doesn't have anything else other than experiences of that avatar. So that's us. We're really a, this free will awareness unit, subset of our individual unit of consciousness. And we're convinced we're really human beings, you know, that we're, we are these, these bodies because we don't know anything else. All what right, about so, when we talk about uh, if, if you, I know you don't really believe in anything. You say belief is the enemy. It's just keep yourself <laughs> skeptical. Um, but when we talk about reincarnation, it's like the player yeah. continuing to log on onto the same okay. game. Is there a leak between the avatars between lives that they they learn or and or keep some of that information between yeah. each game? Yeah, well, exactly. So 
you know, my model has reincarnation in it. I call it experience packets because I like to stay away from all the old baggage words that, you know, people have emotional connections to. <laughs> and the reason, not because I think that's a good idea, but because learning requires it. Learning isn't something you can do in parallel. You can't learn, uh, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, up through graduate school, all in the same year. Right. You know, first you have to learn, to, you know, kindergarten and that prepares you for first grade which prepares you for second grade so learning is a serial process you have to understand this before you can really understand that right and the learning keeps getting more deeper and more complex and and so on so what we are here to do so we we now have logged on to this this uh, virtual reality and this is a point that will maybe make a lot of sense to some people and that is that when you have an information system that is now a social system, right? It's got a bunch of individuated consciousness interacting with each, other, with each other. In a social system, the way you reduce entropy, the way you minimize entropy, which means maximize your evolution, is by caring, is by cooperating, is by sharing. It's caring about other, not just about self. So that cooperative caring is the low entropy way of interacting in a social system. If you have a social system and it's just all about you, everybody's just out for themselves, that's high entropy. Everybody's struggling. Everybody else is everybody else's enemy. You know, everybody else is whatever. Even if they form cliques to beat up somebody else, those cliques aren't all that stable because whoever's ahead of that clique, well, somebody else wants to be the head of that clique. You know, they're not stable. They keep changing. So in any case, that leaves us with the idea that we are here in this virtual reality, and it's a social system, and the point of our being here is to learn how to cooperate, how to care, becoming love, making it about other, not just about yourself. Mm. That is what we're trying to learn. That's the you key. ever read The Law of One? No, I haven't. I haven't read it. It's probably just like that uh, argument you heard with me and uh, and Rupert, and that was there's a there's a uh, philosophy that basically is the fact that we are all one. You know, well, we all come. We're all connected. Part of that. It's part of that. But the what the biggest uh, concept in uh, raw. It's a channeled work, kind of like Seth uh -huh. Smith or Bashar or anything. Right. But he says the the that our whole gamut in this game essentially is to learn to be have a, a distribution of service to others more than service to self it's, it's exactly the same mm -hmm. yeah that's what we're here for mm -hmm. so we're here to grow up we're here to become kind now acting kind is nice and everybody around you appreciates it when you act kind but that's not the point that doesn't help you grow up what helps you grow up is being kind and there's a big difference between acting kind and being kind. Mm -hmm. So we're here to grow up at the being level. To do that takes a lot more than just one set of experiences. That's just not enough because what we have to do is change who we are. That's something that is a difficult thing to do. Right. So you have to have multiple experiences. You can't say, well, okay, Avatar, you got one shot. You know, hope you come out the other side, uh, you know, a saint. <laughs> uh, you know, you just have one shot. Well, that doesn't work, obviously. Learning is a serial process. You learn one thing, and then you got to learn the next thing. Mm -hmm. So you need reincarnation for the system to work. 
Same thing with, uh, you know, World of Warcraft or The Sims or whatever. You know, if you had a character in World of Warcraft, then you only get one shot. As soon as your character dies, you're out of the game and we won't let you play anymore. Mm-hmm. You only got one shot. Well, yeah. that's not interesting because it takes you through probably 50 deaths in World of <laughs> Warcraft before you begin to understand how to not die, how to win, how mm-hmm. to how to deal with those rules in that game. Mm-hmm. So the game as a learning, as a... Uh, you know, as, as a as a virtual reality trainer, well, you wouldn't want a flight trainer and tell your pilot, all right, you got one shot. We're going to put you in this flight trainer and that's it. You know, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully by the end of this session, you're, you're going to be a good pilot because that's all you got. Well, that doesn't work. Yeah, Learning is serial. So we get to go around and around and around and do it again and again. And when we do, we just give whatever, whatever, quality of consciousness we've earned in other words however low entropy our consciousness has become at that point that's what we start with Mm -hmm. that's that part that goes logs on to the next avatar Mm -hmm. so we our our quality of consciousness accumulates Mm -hmm. with time so we start out but that you start with that quality but you still have to make choices Mm -hmm. you still have to make choices and you can then make bad choices and de-evolve Mm-hmm. But you're more likely to make better choices if you started with a lower entropy to begin with or a higher quality of consciousness to begin with. So that's how that works. So that's our purpose. That's why we're here. Mm. We're here to learn to not be so self-centered. We're here to care about other people and not just, again, it's not just acting nice. It's being nice, really caring at a sincere, deeper level. So yeah. that's the point of our existence. Now that ties a lot of things together. You know, virtual reality, why? Well, it was necessary. The whole system got kind of plateaued in its learning. Without that, you need that kind of that thing. And and uh, what, are, what are our night dreams? What are our out of bodies? They're just another class. Hmm. At night, what do you do in your night dreams? You make choices. Mm-hmm. And by those choices in your dreams at night, you evolve or you de-evolve. It's just another virtual reality in which you play. And when you go out of body, you're in another virtual reality that the system's feeding you the data stream and there'll be NPCs, non-player characters in it. And you'll be situations and you have to decide what are you going to do? Are you going to fight? Are you going to care? Are you going to, you know, is it all about you? Are you fearful? Uh, you know, it's just all those things. You get to make choices. And by those choices, you have opportunities to grow up. This is a big one because I have a lot of stress dreams. And I was like, what does MBT have to say about dreams? You already kind of said it. But um, the idea of some of those fears playing out in that mm-hmm. particular virtual reality of things that I'm having in my waking life in this right. particular type of reality, trying to make me more aware of a lot of those, mm-hmm. those fears that I have. So what happens when someone has essentially maxed their, not maxed, but like reduced to the nth degree, their entropy. What happens after they're essentially done and they've won the game? Well, you never are done. Okay. <laughs> and you, you never, you, you know, there is no uh, win the game. Entropy, like, like entropy everywhere, you know, entropy is a physics word and our world works with entropy too. And that is to lower entropy, you have to put in effort. 
-hmm. Entropy doesn't just lower by itself. In fact, if you don't do anything, disorder increases. Got it. Okay. Right. So entropy actually grows and we're trying to lower it. So if you don't do any, if you don't put any work in a system, the system starts to fall apart. Is that just because that's the nature of the law of physics? That's just the nature of the law of reality. Yeah. Okay. Nature of the law of everything. If you don't put any effort in, things start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. If you never do maintenance on your house, your house will eventually fall apart. You know, it just is the way it is. If you have even a battery, it sits on the shelf for so long, it goes away. Yeah. It's not a battery anymore. That's a law even, in our system. Actually, in physics, it's called the second law of thermodynamics. Hmm. And that is that uh, in, in our natural world where we have what's called uh, um, processes that that uh, move forward, you, you know, everything's not reversible. You can't just say, oh, I take that back. And then everything was just the way it is. Right. When you make choices, those choices change things. Yeah, you, you can't take it back. So in that kind of a reality, that the um, entropy of the universe will always increase. Hmm. Because it just wears down. So eventually, our universe here, our physical universe, our virtual reality, will just be a cloud of you know, elementary particles and hydrogen gas, you know, suns will explode, things will, you know, it, it'll just decay, eventually, till as all a result of our lack of effort, well, we can make effort to change it. With mm -hmm. effort, we can lower entropy. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some things like uh, whether a sun expands and, and, and blows up, becomes a supernova, that's nothing that we're going to change. Right. That's just the nature of our universe. We're too small to affect that. But we can lower entropy with effort. If we try, if we want to grow up, if we want to lower our entropy, want to be caring, be kind. And it's not just that other is advantaged by us being kind, but we become advantaged by being kind. When you grow up and lower your entropy, your life becomes full of joy. Everything works well. Your relationships become really good. Everything just works out tremendously. Matter of fact, the more you stop trying to force things to be the way you, you want them, things will just naturally be the way you need them. Mm. Now, so. can you define that? Because I know a lot of people are going to hear because we talk about willing versus allowing. And when we talk about specifically when we talk about manifestation. And so when you're trying to force things into being, there's typically some kind of energy behind it of a fear or something mm -hmm. scarcity or whatever, where you're trying to push. That's not necessarily effort, right? Or is it? Right. No, okay. that's, that's right. If there's a fear behind it, like we said earlier, even if that fear is buried someplace that you don't know it's there, it's putting negative energy mm -hmm. into the process. So, yes, when you try to manifest things, it has to be from a deep center. I said sincere, you, since, sincere you might say from the heart. Mm. It has to be from your being level. And it has to be really a low entropy thing. Yeah. It has to be something that's useful, that's good, that uh, has value, not just to you, but to people in general. Because mm. if it's just you, Ah, what I want's a new Mercedes Benz, you know. <laughs> that's what I want, you know. Yeah. All right, I dig ditches and I only make, you know, two, you know, twenty thousand dollars a year, but I want a new Mercedes Benz and I'm just going to keep putting, you know, effort into it till I get one. Well, that's probably not going to work. 
couple of reasons. One, it's all about you. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not anything that's an adva- you know adva- advantageous to anybody but you. So it's very self-centered, and the probability of that happening when you don't make much money is very low. Anyway, you'd have to move probability a whole lot to make that happen. So that's probably not going to happen. And people who are self-centered aren't very good about being low noise focused. You Mm -hmm. see those two things don't work together. So if you are high entropy and it's all about you and you're self-centered trying to modify future probability is a lot harder Mm -hmm. because you've got a lot of intrinsic stuff in you that is high entropy and you need a low entropy intent. That's what low low noise means, right? Low noise means low entropy. So that's how it all plays together. So the people who really don't care that much about what happens or how it happens or whatever. They're just happy. They're relaxed. They smile a lot. Life is happy and good. And whether they get this or get that, it doesn't matter. You know, this is happy in a, you know, in an old car as they are in a new car. And it's, they're just not into stuff so much. They're just into caring. They're into relationship. They're into, uh, you know, growing up. Well, you'll find that for those people, Everything they need just falls at their feet just as they need it. Everything happens just as they need it. Yeah. And if there's a problem or something comes up and, oh, no, I'm going to miss the mortgage payment. Well, you know, the landlord comes and says, you don't have to pay me this month. You know, things just happen and they go through life smiling, happy, full of joy. Doesn't mean they're wealthy. Doesn't mean they're poor. It just means they're happy Mm. and they have a lot of joy in their life. And the people who are, Gimme, gimme. I need, I want more. I want more. I have to have that. I have to have this other thing. I want status. I want power. Well, all that's very self centered. And those people, sometimes they are wealthy, but they're not happy Mm. and they're not full of joy. Yeah. That was something I was going to ask you. I was like, there are plenty of terrible people at the top, quote unquote top, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean necessarily they're happy or fulfilled. No. And I would say if you take people who got to the top, by being self-centered, you know, rip everybody else off kind of is how they got there. They're miserable. They're mm-hmm. very unhappy. And yes, of course, when the cameras are running, they'll smile and they'll pretend that, that, you know, they're just, everything's perfect, but they're not, they're running scared and they're unhappy and they're insecure and they're just as miserable as the person who doesn't have those resources and is, and is negative. So, yeah. Being positive is the key. Mm-hmm. Not fake positive, but like a no. genuine self-centered or self-centered, not in, in the conceited way, but self-centered positivity. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to, we're actually going to go to Patreon and do the rest of this interview over there. So guys, if you want to become a Patreon member, go to patreon.com slash the lovely to be able to listen to the rest of this interview. But before we go on this platform, can you please tell everyone where they can find you and where they can buy your book? Okay, well, you can buy my book most any place books are sold, I guess. And if they don't have it, you can always ask them to get it. But it's at Amazon. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can always buy any book at Amazon, I believe. You can buy it from my bookstore at my website, which is www.my-big-toe.com. If you want to know where I'm going to be and courses I might be teaching or things that I'm doing, uh, you go to 
www.mbtevents.com. Um, if you just want to saturate yourself in my material, you can go to YouTube, which is uh, youtube.com slash TWCJR44. And that will give you to my YouTube channel. And I literally have several thousands of hours of videos there, but I have a nice new tool where you can go search by subject. So you can search through all of those thousands of hours, just looking for certain subjects. Mm -hmm. And uh, it'll return you and say, go to this video at this minute, you know, yeah. this hour and minute, and that subject will be talked about there. YouTube's so, gotten really savvy now. So. <laughs> so those are the ways you can get hold of me. I just put a product out uh, this past week called Tom's Park, mm -hmm. which, is a, which is a product to help people personally experience the paranormal and to help people grow up and and um, get rid of fear and get rid of ego and what i've done is i've created a very safe supportive environment for everybody to interact in so you can go to this tom's park and not only are there fun things to do there like you might expect in any uh, park but there's people to get involved with Mm. there's uh there's other people to uh, connect with mm -hmm. and there's there's um lots of things there there's you know places to get to be healed there's uh, places uh, to get rid of fear there's all kinds of facilities and attractions and things to do but it's an iterative thing you have to get to it and actually engage it it's something you could do for an hour a day for the rest of your life mm -hmm. so it's not like a normal book that you read and then put it on a bookshelf Right. And maybe you'll read it again, or maybe some people even read them three times. But this is something you live. It's not mm -hmm. something just to read. That's beautiful. So Thank it's you. uh yeah. So that's that's now available as a uh, ebook, and in the next couple of weeks we'll have an audio book and a and a paperback book with that in it too. It's not real thick, so it's not a it's not a hard read. It's not like the My Big Toe. You know, the, <laughs> it's not a hard read at all. It's a very simple read. And it just sets up a situation to enable people to grow up and help them help themselves get rid of their fears, understand who they are and how they work. But it's a it's a tool, really. It's not just a thing to get into your intellect. It's a thing that you have to be yourself. You have to you have to interact with it. And to uh, and you have to do it iteratively, interact with it again and again and again. And the more you interact with it, the the more valuable it is, the more value you, you get out of it. So that's awesome. kind of a that's kind of a new thing. Well, thank you so much for for being on the show. And guys, if you want to hear the rest of this episode, I think we're going to talk about meditation. I'd like to talk about meditation specifically. You have some really amazing tools around meditation and how to connect and also how to do a lot of that out-of-body experience. I want to hear more about some of your weird experiences, uh, which would be really fun. So if you want to be a part of that, go to patreon.com slash the lovely Aaliyah. And I hope you love this episode. If you did, please send it to someone you love and we will see you in the next one. Hope you enjoyed this episode please share it with someone you love and if you're interested in becoming a client for energy coaching or card readings find me at thelovelyalia.com to read more about what i do and to book your own session and don't forget to add me on the lovely Aaliyah on instagram for daily content and inspiration and hang out with me on patreon as always thank you for listening mm -hmm.